Katya. And I'm Rin. And we're here at the Commonwealth Center for Holistic Herbalism in Boston, Massachusetts. And on the internet everywhere, thanks to the power of the podcast. Woohoo! Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right, so we're happy to be talking to you all again. It's another episode of our podcast. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm just going to go right into our reclaimer that we like to do at the top of every episode. So this is where we remind you that we are not doctors. We are herbalists and holistic health educators. The ideas discussed in this podcast do not constitute medical advice. No state or federal authority licenses herbalists in the United States, so these discussions are for educational purposes only. Everybody's body is different, so the things that we're talking about may or may not apply directly to you, but they will give you some information to think about and research further. Yeah, and we want to remind you that good health is your own personal responsibility. The final decision when you're considering any course of therapy, whether it's discussed on the internet or prescribed by a physician, is always yours. Today, I think I also want to add everybody's experience is different, Mm -hmm. and so... The things that we're talking about may or may not be things that you have experienced, but that doesn't make them not true. Yeah, that's right. And actually, some of what we want to talk about today um, is, it it may seem a little bit in conflict with the statement that good health is your own personal responsibility. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It's not in the end, but it might seem that way. It's not in conflict. (laughs) Right, right. Uh, It's not in conflict, but it may seem that way for a moment. Because what we want to talk about today is about community and about the impact that community and society can have on individual health. You know, I almost feel like before we get too started, I feel that both of us are just a smidge on the hesitant side. (laughs) Um, And it's because we want to do a really good job today. Yeah, when I was uh, looking at our our plan or our our script that we were uh, working up together for this, I was like, oh, I want to have references. I want to. I want to make sure everybody gets all the details and all of the, the numbers and and gets a real clear sense of the scope. And then I realized that's not actually my job here. Um, yeah, <laughs> that that's important. And I am going to provide some references for you uh, for for what we have in mind here, um, but not a million of them. Uh, just enough to get you started, um, because th- this is a really big topic. <laughs> there's yeah. a lot. There's a lot to it. Um, And I think what we can offer best is our perspective as herbalists, as holistic practitioners and thinkers, um, and to try to draw out why we find that this topic is necessary to talk about, to think about, to act about, Mm. um, if you're going to be an herbalist, if you're going to be a holistic healthcare provider. Yeah. And I, I think that also this is just a really good time to say that I really want to do a good job. I want to say this well. I want to say it in a way that um, is moving and meaningful for for those of you listening who need to be moved and also that is respectful and in solidarity for those of you listening who um, have been dealing with these things for a long time and um, I feel like that's a little bit of a hard balance to strike, especially when we're here alone recording this and we can't necessarily see how everybody is reacting. So, Hmm. um, you know, it's so much easier when you are doing work interpersonally to to let that be a collaboration with the person that you are working with because everything is sort of evolving and unfolding 
um, cooperatively and as people who work collaboratively and cooperatively in basically everything, sometimes it's hard to address something that that needs to be a collaboration mm-hmm. um, when 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 it's asynchronous that you're going to be listening to this at a time that is different than the time in which we are actually saying it. And yeah. so I guess what that means is just that you know that really want to do a good job today and of course i always feel like oh no and that means i'm gonna screw it up (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah i think a lot of people feel that way well so what we're talking about is um the fifth pillar and so we love our four pillars of good health model that we talk about on almost every episode or it's kind of the subtext of what we're discussing um and this is where we see that the major determinants of health for an individual are going to be their food their sleep, the kind of stress that they experience and how they cope with it, and finally, uh, movement, what kind of movement they have in their life and how much and what what kind and all of that. So food, sleep, stress, and movement are four fundamental aspects of health, health maintenance, uh, recovery from illness or from disease for everybody. And those are the areas where we devote our attention as holistic practitioners. Those are the areas of health that we try to support with herbs in order to make change in someone's health. And and not like that's the only work, but like that foundation is so um, like dysfunctional or or in disbalance in our current lives just because um, the way that we live our lives in this culture is so out of balance with what our bodies expect. Our bodies do not actually expect Dunkin' Donuts. Um, like it's a surprise every time. Like, whoa, what is this? And what are you doing to me? Um, and so, so we really lean heavily on these four four pillars um, as a way to reset a baseline. And what we find is that when we do that work. Um, to bring the inputs closer in line to what the body expects them to be. They're not going to be perfect and they don't need to be, but just closer Um, that it removes a lot of symptoms that are in our way. And then we're able to look at what, what is left over and uh, it, it, it removes a lot of the clutter. It removes a lot of the noise. It makes whatever is left over in terms of discomfort or dis-ease or, or illness or chronic whatever, whatever is left over becomes a lot easier to manage because it's, it is reduced so greatly mm. when, we, when we pull these other things out of the equation. Yeah. Uh, but... <laughs> <laughs> But uh, as we've been thinking and considering lately, um, uh, you the other day were realizing uh, or thinking about wanting to talk about a fifth pillar. Yeah, yeah, you know, and and it's funny because a little while later in the notes that you were I, I was writing and then you were writing and when we write our notes, we sort of go back and forth with them. Um, but you had written at some point that when, when it's healthy, we call it community. And when it's unhealthy, we call it society. And I was like, wow, babe, that's brilliant. And you were like, oh no, you said that a really long time ago in the energetics course. And I just was remembering (laughs) that you said that. And, um, uh, so, I mean, is this stuff that, 
that we've been thinking about for a while, but I think that um, as as it becomes less and less possible for white people and people of privilege to escape the reality of systemic racism in our culture, um, that not not that we are suddenly discovering that like, oh my goodness, there's, a, but it's like, it is becoming more and more impossible to pretend like we didn't notice. And, um, which is good, which is good. <laughs> but as that is happening more and more, um, this, this concept of the impact of community or society on health, the, the system that we live in on our health is so much larger than just, oh, well, culturally it's not really appropriate to take sick days so even though you have them you just have to work anyway <laughs> it's like yeah no there's more than that there are many many other uh layers and expressions right yeah so community um community is going to shape the other four pillars right community that you live in shapes what kind of food you eat it shapes how much sleep you get it shapes what kind of stressors you experience how you move what kind of movements you make um, but community also includes things like compassion and justice and equity. These are things that don't exist, uh, you know, in one one human by themselves, right? Yeah. They they come into practice or they come into existence or go out of existence when there's many people together in a group, in a society, or in a community. Mm. Um, and so we've over the years come to realize that this is not actually like optional or tangential to the work that we do as herbalists or as people who are trying to help others heal. When we um, talk about holistic thinking, when we think holistically, that means a lot of things. It means trying to see the whole picture. Uh, and it teaches us to recognize that our health and the health of the planet are intertwined and mm -hmm. that they are in a very personal way. You know, and a lot of times when we teach this, we start out thinking about the environment, about ecology, about pollution, about clean air and water, about, uh, you know, nourishing food that's been grown in a way that's going to, you know, get nutrients out of the soil and put them into the bodies of the people who eat those foods. And then also put them back in the soil. Right. Yeah. So we, we talk a lot and we think a lot about those aspects of... Uh, the intertwining of the health between one individual and the the big <laughs> the big picture the really big picture right the planet picture yeah but there's this intermediary layer well there are many of them right <laughs> between the individual and the ecosystem uh, but there's a, a layer there that we call community or we call it society and again we we tend in the way we speak to to be like oh this society the way we've got our society today <laughs> it tends to be when it's not working not healthy you know not supporting individuals uh but when it is then we talk about community you know if somebody has a community of support that they can call on that's yeah. that's positive you know that's something good so you know in this consideration one of the things we keep coming back to uh, is that for so many people, their capability to take control over their own health is limited by societal pressures and by imbalances and by injustices uh, that they are subject to. So the, there's a, a term that a lot of folks use to, to, to discuss this concept, which is the social determinants of health. Mm -hmm. The idea that 
the society or the community that you live in or that you're a part of is going to be one of the major factors that determines how healthy you are and what kind of risks you're subjected to. This is, if this is a new idea for you, then a really like basic um, way that you can think about it is if you live in a place where you have access to lots of good quality food, then the likelihood is that you have some good quality food and, and you have access to it in, in that means that it is available for purchase and you are able to purchase it, right? You have enough right. dollars to acquire it and it is there for you. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you live in a place where there aren't any grocery stores and the only way to get food is either some sort of fast food takeout or like 7-Eleven, then where are you going to go to get your organic kale? Like that's not actually available to you, even if you had the money for it, which maybe you don't, maybe you don't in this situation. And so if we can just recognize that eating good quality food makes you more likely to be healthy and that's like pretty, pretty easy to understand. Then we can also translate that to, well, if there is no good quality food, it's going to be very difficult to be healthy if one of the determinants is to have good quality food, right? So in this way, this is how we can look at society levels because, um, you know, it's not like some sort of coincidence or accident or um, like a surprise that marginalized communities don't have whole foods, don't have, you know, beautiful farmer's markets or, or whatever else that's on purpose, right? Like, in our culture, in our society, we have decided that good quality food can only be accessible to people who have enough money to purchase it. And that in communities where people typically don't have a lot of money, in, in low-income communities, um, in marginalized communities, that kind of food is just simply not available. Right. And it doesn't stop there either. You know, I mean, if we look at something like pollution... Um, <clears throat> pollution is not evenly distributed uh, mm-hmm. in, in the country or even within a single city. You know, mm-hmm. there was an incident um, a few months back where there was an oil refinery in, I believe, uh, Philadelphia area. Mm, I may be mistaken. I think oh, either that or Houston, because this also happened in Houston. But I think I'm thinking about during the hurricane yeah. that a chemical plant exploded and of course, that plant was in a marginalized community, and so the damage mm-hmm. was limited to... There was there was a flooding incident uh, just recently um, where something like this happened, you know, and there was a chemical plant that mm-hmm. was going to be in the flood zone, and, you know, um, again, those aren't always, like, far off away from all of the people that could possibly be harmed by them. There are a lot of people, and a lot of times, whether it's an oil refinery or a chemical plant or whatever else... There can be dangerous uh, substances, dangerous materials, and people can be living right next door. And the people who live there, they don't tend to be the wealthy. They don't tend to be the white. They don't tend to be the powerful in in whatever sense. Um, They're people who are marginalized, and so they are more likely to be harmed by environmental toxicity and also by, you know, acute uh, emergency situations. They're, They're in a much greater risk area. That was a thing with Standing Rock, too, is that the pipeline that they ultimately are pushing through the 
land that belongs to Native Americans in Standing Rock was originally proposed to go through a more affluent area. And all of the affluent people with their polo shirts and their whatever, you know, I don't know, whatever image in your mind, went to their town meeting and said, oh, no, 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 we can't have that. It'll depress our property values and whatever. And then the designers of the project said, oh, you're right. How silly of us. And they redesigned the project so that it went through reservation land. It went through Native American land. And everybody said, oh, great, that's fine. Mm -hmm. I, I mean... Like, that's not fine. It's not fine. It's not fine. okay, right? But that happens over and over and over again. Um, Most frequently, it doesn't... They don't even bother designing it with the stuff in the affluent areas. There's a a podcast called, Well, There's Your Problem. And it's it's for civil engineers who are discussing um, racism in engineering. And... Uh, how it is that highways get built and what places they get built next to, like what homes they get built next to or what homes they destroy. And um, it's a very interesting podcast to listen to uh, if you are interested in those kinds of things. But, But at any rate, none of that is happening by mistake. That is absolutely, it isn't like, huh, where could we put, oh, I don't know, here's some land. What if we put it here? It is absolutely designed this way. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, another example that we we uh, raise often about this is that black people have more heart attacks than white people do. Mm-hmm. Even after you look at the, the two population groups and you say, all right, well, what if we match people by the part of the country that they live in, by their environments, by the amount of pollution they're exposed to, even if we try to match people by their economic status or whatever other factor you you care to look at, you try to do that that controlling on the data and what you come out with is that they still get more heart attacks than white people. Uh, and the only thing that really remains to, to look at or to point at is that this is an impact of systemic racism. It's due to the stress of living in a society that's got structural racism built into it. And that's both the direct stress of, you know, being profiled, uh, receiving microaggressions, being actually, you know, arrested and beaten and killed uh, at much greater rates than white people. It's that that direct influence, but it's also the impact that this then has on things like what does your environment look like? How many trees are in your neighborhood? Mm -hmm. How much pollution is there? Um, what kind of food is available? How it, much policing is there? Yeah. Um, and and what's the what's the nature of the of the relationship between police and right, people? Right. Yeah. Like, I I think that this is a place where a lot of people, especially a lot of people who maybe are are white and and don't have a super easy life. And, and also are like, well, hey, at the end of the month, I struggle to pay my bills, too, and my life is hard, too, um, that sometimes it can be hard to say, to, to accept that there is a difference here. But um, one way that I can explain this is, and this, this is an example that may only work for people who were raised as women, but... If you are listening and you were raised as a a woman, then you were taught 
to not offer your opinions at certain times. You were taught to smooth things over in certain ways. Um, and you were taught to do that because of what society calls being, defines being a woman versus being a man. And um, so if you think about that, and if you don't have a lot of uh, friends who are people of color, whether it's black or Hispanic or Asian or, or whatever, um, Native Americans, then, then you might not understand that every single day of their lives, when they go out of the house, they have to think about how they behave in a very similar way, just like it is to be a woman in this culture, except even more, like mm. 10 million times more. Imagine if every single time you pulled out of your driveway, you even before you got in your car, you thought, what shirt should I wear so that when I get pulled over, I don't look like a threat. This is, this is what it is to live in this culture. And so if you, if you haven't, if you don't have friends who have told you about this, then it might be hard for you to accept. Mm. And I, so, so if you can think about a time in your life that you have had to self-censor in order to smooth things over or that you felt you couldn't say something because you might lose your job, that can be a point where you can grab onto some understanding and you can say, oh, I, I do know what that feels like. And then you can look at the systemic racism in this country and then imagine how would that be like if I had to think of it every single time I left my house. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, a lot of people who are interested in herbalism also like to spend time outside and, mm -hmm. and go on hikes and be in nature. Um, you know, and uh, the the incident just recently um, with... Uh, it was in Central Park. There was yeah. a, a woman who was a vice president of a financial company who was walking her dog um, and the dog was not on a leash in an area that is very popular for people who are bird watching. And it's posted all over that the dogs have to be on a leash. And you guys, we have dogs. We have, we have dog. <laughs> we have Elsie. And uh, we also love to let Elsie off her leash. But sometimes you can't do that because we're sharing space with lots of different people who have lots of different interests. And so sometimes your dog has you to be don't. on a you leash. Be responsive to your community. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. And so um, I don't know if you saw this going around in social media, but um, this gentleman who was a, a black man who was an avid birder was also in Central Park and wanted to look at birds and um, came up upon the, you know, like saw this woman as he was walking past and said, I, I am trying to bird watch and this is an area where dogs need to be on a leash. Please could you put your dog on, on the leash? And she became so angry that she was asked to obey the rules, just the regular rules that everybody has to abide to, that she called 911 and said that she was being attacked. And she outright admitted to the guy, like, no, nah, I'm going to do this to get you in trouble. Mm. Um, and, and said that she was be that she and her dog were being attacked by a black man. And ultimately, um, in this one particular case, because it was on video, there has been some justice and... Um, 
the police did not show up and arrest this guy, and <laughs> yeah. which all could have happened. But that was the risk, right? Like, the risk in a situation like that is that the white woman calls the police, they show up, they see the black man, they shoot him. You know, uh, it happens so frequently that mm-hmm. we <clears throat> have almost become desensitized to it, but it's uh, it's it's unconscionable, you know? It's, it's impossible to to put up with so that drives people to the streets and then they want to want to make their voice heard and Mm -hmm. so we go around but to kind of bring it back to to thinking about about herbalism and about health and and all of that when we see this going on when we see that there are these factors that are systemic in nature um and that are that are affecting minorities uh, we when we recognize that that's in play here, we can say, all right. So for any individual person, yes, they can improve their diet. They can, you know, eat differently to the extent that they're able. They can take hawthorn and, and linden, and we can give them motherwort tincture, mm-hmm. and you know, all these herbs that are going to support the heart and take care of them. But they're still going to be at greater risk anyway because of these societal problems, right? There are things that are not in their direct control. And that they can't make a change in through their own willpower and through their own decisions and their own buying practices, right? There are aspects that influence their health that are not at, in their direct control, mm-hmm. right? So that then leads us to understand that as healers and holistic herbalists and everything <laughs> else um, who say that we want to understand and we want to work with and help to heal the whole person... It's our responsibility to look not just at one individual and what's out of balance in that person's life, but what's out of balance in our community and our society as a whole, too. And and yes, obviously, this is true in all cases. If for every person that you work with, right, because our society is not awesome. And it's it's also not only broken in one way, right? Right. It's It's not just broken along racism. It's broken, broken along sexism and heteronormativity and I mean we can go on and on and on Mm -hmm. and many people have some degree of privilege and some degree of um of injustice in their lives right there's that intersectionality where these things overlap um and so you know you may have some power in one context and and not have it in another and those can be happening in the very same moment so Mm -hmm. yeah so it can get it can get complicated but we can still recognize these factors Yeah. yeah and that that overall, when we fight for justice for everyone, everyone is better off, right? When, it, like, we all want to have nice things. We all want to have a nice life. We all would like cake for dinner or whatever wonderful thing we want. We all, we all just want to live our lives and be happy and not have people in our faces about stuff and also not hurt, you know, like, and if we recognize that everybody wants that and that as long as some people don't have it, actually nobody has it. Because if you think about it, the pressure of enforcing that some people don't get it, that also makes you sick, right? Like that, that's a hatred. That's a, that stews in you and that's also a problem so it even if even if you aren't like social justice social justice minded already naturally you can even just think of it in terms of like hey i don't want to be talked to in a way that's not respectful 
What that actually means is that you don't want anybody to be talked to in a way that is not respectful. Because if you're like, well, I just want to go through my life and have everybody only respect me. I don't really care what happens to everybody else. They're not my problem. Just, I don't want anybody to disrespect me ever. That's a fantasy. That's never going to happen. Either we all are going to do okay or we're all not going to do okay. Um, well, I guess some people will have some extra money, but no one will be happy. I you mean, know? yeah, right. So there is that aspect of like people can be shielded from these effects um, on their own lives and that can allow them to ignore them uh, and to act in ways that worsen these problems. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you had you had written into our notes here. You could even be Donald Trump, who way, way before the whole presidency nonsense was an example for the person who literally has everything <laughs> and even a gold toilet, you know? Yeah. But the system still hurts you, even in that situation, maybe in ways that you're not paying attention to, uh, but it is it is real. It is happening, right? Okay. Acts of, uh, of non-compassion and an inability to access compassion, that has an influence. That has an influence on people. When we, when we are talking about individual health and we're, we're talking to clients, one of the things we do ask about is like, what's your emotional life look like? What are the emotions that you experience most frequently? Um, over the years, I learned to start asking people, what are emotions you have difficulty accessing or mm. expressing? Mm -hmm. And that is something that we do look at as being an expression or a, um, I guess you could say a symptom, uh, an indicator of the person's overall health. You know, someone may seem like their, their physical health is all in good order and everything, but if they can never manifest anger, in a productive, you know, directed way, mm -hmm. then there's something that's not quite right going on in there. Um, we talk a lot about how your emotional at, uh, life and your your mental life are not separated from your physical life, and the same thing is going on here. So someone who has the has has lost or has had trained out of them the capacity to feel compassion or empathy for other people. There, there's an impact to that. There's, there's a consequence to it. You know, and that consequence is also even very personal because just think about a day when you woke up on the wrong side of the bed and you were feeling pretty grumpy about how much everyone in your life was just not good enough. What's really going on there is that you're feeling like you're just not good enough, right? So frequently you know, you wake up in the morning and you wake up defensive because you didn't get something done or you don't, f you feel like a fraud or whatever. And what do you do with those feelings? You take it out on other people so that you don't feel so bad anymore. And so when we see people who are lashing out in acts of non-compassion um, or in acts of hatred or in acts of racism, then there's like direct self-harm happening in that in that moment as well because the likelihood that you are sending out those emotions to other people but not also feeling self-loathing at the same time even if you're not admitting it like lots of people um have this big front of self-righteousness while they are um hurting other people but but it's not real it's hmm. Yeah. Like they're hurting too, and and none of this explain ex uh, excuses any of that behavior, right? No, so, I mean not not by any stretch. No, There's... it's just it's just the like, hey, if we could just all let go of this, like you, 
I have this t-shirt. I love this t-shirt. It says equal rights for others doesn't mean less rights for you. It's not pie. And I, I think that's, that's the thing that I want to try to like, I know that there are a lot of people who feel a block, um, about fighting for justice for other people because they feel like they perceive that they don't have enough justice for themselves or they perceive that if they fight for other people to have justice, that they're going to lose something. Mm -hmm. And what I really want to get across is that that is, it couldn't be further from the truth. Right. Because the more that you fight for other people, the more that you also can unravel that self-loathing for yourself. Yeah. Especially because, you know, very few of us are actually in those positions of power that are insulated Mm -hmm. uh, from from the majority of the effects of these of these policies of these of these societal structures, right? So like the the one percent or the point one percent, whatever, they're gonna fly off in their helicopters and like okay, I guess that's fine. But many many people adopt the attitudes of those people in positions of power, mm -hmm. even though they're not actually. Uh, I guess getting the benefits of that. I mean, they in fact do not have the helicopter to fly off to the yeah. private island. Which right. honestly, aren't the private islands just going to get flooded by climate change? But whatever. Well, that's yeah. a separate issue. Right. So I mean, there is an aspect of this line of thinking that kind of goes like: if people of privilege or people of power or people who partake of uh, you know uh, appearances that are associated with privilege and power, uh, anyway, if those people understood clearly that racism harms everyone if they clear-eyed if they could see the effects of racism not just on the others but also on people like me mm -hmm. then they would realize that this is a bad deal uh and this is like this is um it makes me think of a very old um saying from william blake the fool who persists in his folly will become wise and one of the ways to expand that teaching is to say like you take somebody who believes that they're acting in their own self-interest and you get them to uh, to follow through with that as as thoroughly and as as deeply as possible. Like, okay, so what if you were to just do things that would be better for you? And if you follow it through and you get past, like, I want to eat ice cream every day and I want to have all the money I want and I want to all this, or I'm going to behave in ways that look out for number one and all of that. Um, that if you really trace out the extension of your actions and of the things that you do and that others do around you then you end up getting into a web of connections. You end up realizing that there is no justice for everyone until there's just for anyone, for anyone until there's yeah. justice for everyone. Right? We have data on that actually, because uh, it turns out that people who win the lottery are miserable, <laughs> right? Like it, they get divorced, they, they go bankrupt. They like all these things, people who win the lottery, like, and that is the thing, like that's the, that is that exercise of like fully persisting in that folly. Hmm. But we don't have time to wait for the fools to persist in their folly long enough to become wise, right? Right. right. Like there, there are problems now, and uh, and and at the same time, the structures that have been put in place, uh, they actively inhibit this kind of supposedly neutral calculus or or weighing of the options or weighing of policies and how are they going to affect people and how does that actually get back to me, 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 me? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I also want to say here that. Um, you know, I think that it's worth talking about um, there's there's no justice for you if there's not justice for anyone because people are motivated by their own lives. Even people who are good people and who 
who want, you know, TM, whatever that means, who care about their kids and care about their next door neighbor and the elderly woman down the street and, and whatever. Like, it can be very easy to just sort of go through your life and say, well, I'm busy and my life is hard and I don't have time to worry about that thing. Or I don't understand their reactions to what happened to their community. And I think they must be bad reactions and therefore they don't deserve my, Mm -hmm. like there's so many ways to react. And so I think that it is worth saying, uh, it's worth, it's worth exploring a little bit the ways that this affects you, but that aside, even if your life were perfect, it would still be important to fight for justice for everyone. Like, it is important just on itself. It is not okay that there are people being treated this way in our country. Hmm. Even if your life is perfect, it's not okay. Like, I don't want to set it up that, like, the only reason you should fight for justice is because also it's going to be better for you, too. Yeah. It's just that sometimes that can be a way for people who are new to thinking about this to find an entry point so that they can make sense of some new ideas or some ideas that that um we've like we've been all living with this but honestly what we were taught in school was don't notice it it's all fine it's their own fault if they're suffering like These are the things we were taught. We were programmed to not care. Right. And I mean, it's an extension of, of, you know, a a very long history of of racist concepts, you know? So um, one of the ways that that people look at this, at this story as it has played out over time is like, well, for a while, for a long time, people tried to claim differences between racial groups based on you know, uh, physical aspects or genetics or, or something like that. And so, you know, you had the race scientists back in the day talking mm-hmm. about the, the, the black people as like the least evolved and all this other kind of nonsense. And, uh, but then that changed over time and it became less about like, uh, less about nature and more about nurture. And then it was, oh, well, the problem is that they just have bad behavior and they all take drugs and they all make they don't raise and they, they don't raise good kids yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and all of that um, and it's kind of shifting the the arena you work in but the the game you're playing is the same right it's saying that there's something fundamentally different about those people over there and that's why they have the problems they do rather than saying oh well they react that way because of the situation they find themselves in they only have we, access to cheap cheap food. They only have access to, you know, relief in the form of uh, whether it's heroin or crack or whether it's cigarettes or alcohol or whatever. Everybody mm-hmm. seeks relief for pain. If you have access to doctors and healthcare, well, maybe you end up on opiates. And, you know, you look at the differences between the opiate epidemic or the opioid epidemic and um, the way that that's been responded to on a societal level with like, oh, wow, these people were suffering and then they got hooked on the drugs and we got to change the way the prescribers do this and we got to, you know, be cautious about sentencing guidelines for people in this situation and whatever. And then you contrast that with something like what happened around crack and the way that it was all criminalized as mm-hmm. opposed to being looked at as a, as a medical problem, as a problem of suffering and right. people seeking alleviation from suffering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Hold on, I want to go back for a minute because at one point you said the situation they find themselves in and I think that is not accurate. Hmm. I think it is more accurate to say the situation that we put them in. Hmm. Like, I, I think that it's so important to reframe our language constantly and to recognize that even though I did not design redlining, I did not, um, there, I did not make any of these policies. I didn't even vote Republican. Like I didn't, like I'm not, like I didn't do any of this stuff, (laughs) but on the other hand, all of it was done that in a way that benefits me today today and in a way that directly harms someone else and that I I receive that benefit as a result of someone else's harm because that is the system that was built and so I don't even want to say as a result of a situation they find themselves in I want to say as a result of a situation that was built and from which I am benefiting Mm And I would like to benefit. I would like to receive lots of benefits. I would like to have a lovely, wonderful life. But I want everybody to benefit. I don't want to get benefits that came from someone else's suffering. I would like to get benefits that came from other people's benefit. Right? Like, we could actually do that. Hmm. Just think about... So, okay, I'm looking at... um, We have been wanting uh, still to make hydrosols for ever and and this year we finally got the money together and we finally bought one and it's beautiful it's it's copper and i i can't wait to do a class for the medicine making course with with you know hydrosol making and and whatever and um and i just think when i look at it about the people who made it like they have their own business and they they're making these hydrosol stills and they're they're, I mean, they're kind of expensive, but they're, they're also achievable. Like they're reasonably affordable and, and everybody like these people are doing this really beautiful artistic thing that other people would like to have. And look, it's beneficial. I have the benefit of this beautiful thing now that I can't wait to, to like use and make these wonderful hydrosols with, and then also make classes to show other people how to do it. And they were compensated fairly for their work and, and all these different things. Like, that is possible. It's possible because every time you shop on Etsy, it happens. <laughs> and so I don't need to benefit from intentionally harming other people, even if I am not actively sitting there hitting somebody over the head. If, if I am participating in a system that only exists on the back of someone else's pain, then I might as well be hitting them over the head. So anyway, yes. Yeah. So we're all kind of stewing in this system that's that we have uh, either created or have been a part of or have benefited from, benefited from or have been assaulted by. Yeah. Depending on who you are and where you are. Um, and so we can create better, but we have to choose it and we have to do it. And when we talk about food, we have to realize that only some people can find or afford or have access to good food. It's a privilege. Mm-hmm. And that sleep and rest... Uh, that is adequate and nourishing and restorative is a privilege in the way that our culture is set up. And that movement of a kind and an amount that is healing and strengthening rather than degrading to your integrity of your body over time, that's a privilege. 
and freedom from an entire massive category of stressors is basically the archetype of privilege, right? Uh, the stressors of, of systemic racism and other forms of systemic injustice in our society. So those are all privileges and uh, guilt is not a productive response to recognizing your privilege. Right. 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 You don't have to feel shame that you were lucky enough to grow up as like in a, in a, in a position of privilege instead of not that that wasn't your choice. It's not about you, you basically. Were, right. It's not about yes. Yeah. It's not about you. It is just that at this point you are you are either a bystander or you're a person who stands up. And so you don't have to just like a person who's driving down the highway and somebody's car is broken down you, you didn't break their car down, but you pulled over to help and to make sure that they were okay. And, and, and you didn't feel guilty. You were just like, oh my goodness, can I help you? So, so, okay, that, but then also just sort of recognizing that, that all those things like I, movement is one of them, right? Movement is something that I struggle with because, um, because it wasn't super valued in my family. Um, like sitting down and thinking type pursuits were more valued in my, in my own family's culture. So it isn't my nature to be like, I want to go out and sport now. Like I have to, I have to push myself to do it or I have to set it up to be work. Like I will go and work in the garden until I'm exhausted, but I don't really want to go out and just like sport because that's, that's harder for me. And, and all of that and that struggle to like get a good balance of movement in my life so that I'll be healthier and whatever, that is a privilege. Hmm. Because there are people who are working in chicken processing plants whose bodies are literally breaking because of the rate at which they have to do physical labor. And so for them, they're not sitting around saying, hmm, how can I get myself to move a little more today so that I can be healthier? They're like, they're literally breaking. And so... You know, and it's the same. It's the same about diabetes. It's the same about cardiovascular disease. It's if there's no food that's actually food, then how can you not have diabetes? So this stuff, the the whole point is that this stuff is not optional. Hmm. Like good quality food is not actually optional. That is not actually a privilege. Like a privilege is something, the actual definition of privilege is like... Private law. Oh, yeah. Well, I was going to say, okay, not the all the way definition. I meant more like, you know, your parents said you got all your homework done. So you get to go get some ice cream or something like that. And the, the ability to have these things, uh, with relative ease, that is the privilege. The thing itself is, is not to be considered like a thing only for privileged people. Well, that's the thing. It's not like oh, you did your life well, so you can have some broccoli today. Like, the your body... You can't not change the oil in your car. It's not optional. When it's time to change the oil, you have to change the oil because if you don't, your engine will explode. Yeah, and if you can't afford oil, right? If you can't afford to, to get your car changed, you can keep going, and you probably will because you've got places to get to, right? Uh, maybe you'll try to stretch it. Maybe you'll try to, like, find some other way to get it to get it in there. You'll do the best you can, but at some point it's going to break down. 
And that's not just a problem for one motorist, it's a problem for everybody. Right. So that's that's what I want to compare these things to. Like, it isn't optional to get enough sleep. Your body will break if you don't get enough sleep. It isn't optional to eat some vegetables. Like, your body requires it. It can't actually function without it. And so we are living in this society that makes those things privileges instead of needs. Like, we don't acknowledge the non-optional state of those things. We call them a privilege. And that is, like, as a result, we are all breaking. Well, all of the people who don't have enough privilege to get all of the things that they need, and, and then the people who have enough privilege to get all the things that they need... I'm not saying it's bad. Like I want everybody to have all the things that they need, but, but somebody at the top has to say, hold on a second. Look at everybody who doesn't have these things. They need these things. This isn't, this isn't just nice because I worked hard and I can afford it. Yeah. Right. People, people of power, people in positions like that need to recognize this and then work to uh, counteract it. And then anybody who isn't in power, but has some energy, you want to go and, yeah. Advocate for this, right? So thinking about what can we do, all right? So um, again, if you are new to this, if this is like first or second or third time you've been hearing about it, then there's still learning to do, right? So learning and understanding the scope of all of this <laughs> is, <laughs> is, uh, is important. Um, we'll share some resources for you in the show notes. Um, there's a nice uh, collaborative document going around recently that's about some anti-racism resources in particular. Um, and that can be like a good jumping off point to understand this. Recognize that a lot of the insights that are gained from studying one form of oppression are going to apply to others too, right? So when you learn about racism and about the experience of a minority individual um, who's experiencing that from day to day, that can also help you to appreciate what it is uh, to be a woman in a in a patriarchal sexist society, mm-hmm. um, if you are not one, <laughs> right? right. Um, and on and on down the way. So learning, understanding the scope of the problem is important. Um, not to the, not so that it can overwhelm you and make you feel like there's nothing, anything can be done, but so that you can start to see what is the shape of it and where are the intervention points. And so one of those is to cultivate community wherever and however you can. Mm. Um, community was the, the, what we were trying to talk about today really <laughs> was that there are problems in the way our communities relate to each other. There are problems in the way our society uh, behaves as a whole and all of the different subsets of it uh, behave. But cultivating community can be a way to to change that, Mm. right? You know, one way that's easy to think about cultivating community, especially if you are a person who maybe your community is very homogenous, maybe that isn't even your choice. It's just where you happen to live. Um, and, and maybe you feel like you don't understand the, the differences between different communities in this country. Um, you can think about it instead of feeling like, oh, well, I don't understand them. So they must be bad or, or I don't understand them. So I feel nervous or I I better stay away. yeah. Yeah. Instead, you might think about it with interest, like oh, I feel interested in 
Like that's, that is interesting to me. And I don't mean in a tourist kind of way, but, um, but on the other hand, if you were going to a foreign country that was very different from your own country, you would be excited. You would be like, Ooh, what kind of food do you have? Ooh, what kind of this? Ooh, what kind of that? And so while I want to be super clear that it's not okay to be a tourist in other people's communities, um, that would be really rude. The mindset, like it is still a way that you can kind of think about an alternative to fear or an alternative to wrinkling your nose is, is if you think about the respect that comes behind interest in other people's cultures, uh, you wouldn't be interested if you, if there wasn't a foundation of respect there, right? So if you can use that as a way to access that foundation of respect, the respect that says you're a valuable person who does things a little differently than me and I'm interested in that, then that's uh, that's a way that you can access that same kind of respect for another um, neighborhood in your own city, perhaps. Yeah. And this is also about uh, again, like you say, not just being a tourist, it's kind of like going there and maybe like taking some some experience or some information <laughs> or some physical things and then going away again, right? Mm. So the way to not do that is to, to bring something, to share, right? To, mm-hmm. to, to exchange. So you can say who around you doesn't have access to food or sleep or movement or stress mitigation in the way that you do. Um, and how can you share that, right? So if you're listening to this podcast you're interested in herbalism. <laughs> and so we can ask, well, how can herbalists work for community? Uh, one thing that we'd like to think about is that if you, and to act as well, is it, again, if you know some herbalism, then that's a skill. That's a useful mm-hmm. skill. That's information that lots of people can benefit from, mm-hmm. right? Something that you can share and you can put that skill into service, right? You can show up to offer what you have. Mm-hmm. Uh, to people who may not be like you, but can certainly be interested in plants and herbs and taking care of each other. So it's really important when we do this that we show up in service, right? So if once you're like, woohoo, I've got some herbal skills, I'm going to go help people feel better. Um, people know what they need to feel better. They may not, They may not know every part of what they need, but it's not up to us to tell people uh, in an authority kind of way, this is what you should do. It's up to us to listen and then offer solutions when we're asked to. And so it's really important that if you are a person of privilege and you are going to step out into trying to do community work, that you show up recognizing that even if you know a lot about herbalism, you might not know much about the community that you are willing to serve. And you might not know much about community organizing. And also that it is our place to be directed by the people who know what they need. It's not our place to walk in and say, this is how I'm going to fix your life for you. Mm -hmm. It's not okay. It's, it's for us to take our skills and say, I have this to offer. If you would like it, you can tell me how you would like me to offer it. 
uh, I have this to offer and I'm willing to take direction to put it to service in whatever way would be appropriate to you. And um, it's not always appropriate for for people who are white to even directly provide skills. There are times that um, that when we've been approached to do classes um, for people of color, for um, other kinds of communities that maybe are marginalized in some way, and the actual best way to be in service is to privately train um, an intermediary, a person who is a member of that community who is willing to be trained by white people who can then take that knowledge back to their own community. It's not always appropriate for us to even enter the community to do that work. And it's it can be hard to know. Right. And, and so don't let the being hard to know scare you. The way that you won't screw it up is if you are never trying to be in charge, if you are only yeah. trying to be in service and to take direction. Yeah. And to accept when someone says, we actually don't need you. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, thanks for the help. Thanks for the donation. Thanks for the information. But we've got it from here. You know, like that's yeah. your time to say, great. Yeah. I'm thank. You're welcome. Thank you. And I'm out of here. You know. Yeah. yeah. So so that kind of thing can be can be very um, very good um, on the on the on that level. You can also um, kind of scale out and look at the big picture level, and you can work to support groups and individuals who are working for justice and equity at policy levels, whether it's on a national scale, state scale, local community, whatever. Um, so there are a lot of initiatives like this because there are a lot of problems out there. Mm -hmm. um, a few that I would just highlight today, one is Campaign Zero, um, which is uh, basically a big data project that is looking at policies that have been shown to reduce incidents of police violence against citizens. Um, and so looking at what can be done around policies around use of force, um, various kinds of training uh, or, or other things that may be put into play, um, aspects of the uh, contracts um, that police departments have with their communities, um, and looking at what can be done to adjust those in ways that we can prove will lead to fewer people being shot and killed by the police mm -hmm. um, or will lead to fewer arrests of, of like disproportionate arrests of people of color. Um, so we do have information like that. We do have strategies and actions that can successfully achieve these goals. And at this point, it's a matter of spreading that uh, information and getting it to the places where it needs to go and then pushing and pushing and pushing until it becomes real. Mm -hmm. So Campaign Zero is uh, an initiative to do that. I was I was noticing something the other day. Uh, some people on social media were talking about um, about just voting is not enough, right. and specifically about this because one of the regions that is affected right now has a democratic mayor, a democratic city council, a democratic mm -hmm. held state house, and still is suffering from a lot of police brutality. And so um, when we are thinking about um, policy that specifically affects the way that police do their job, then 
it's not enough to just say, oh, I voted Democrat and they're the ones who who are good at that. So it's going to be fine. Um, it really still has to be uh, a, a lot of very strong work to make sure that these policies are implemented, that they are um, forced once they're there. Yeah. On the books. Yeah. yeah, it's not. Yeah, exactly. That they actually are carried out as well as. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so check out Campaign Zero. Um, another one to look at is the Prison Policy Initiative, um, which is basically looking at the effects of mass incarceration and criminalization of behavior um, and the way that that is, you know, of course, unevenly uh, enforced and, mm-hmm. and acted on um, and the way that that leads to, you know, so many more people uh, being incarcerated uh, in the U.S. than any other country. Um, and especially when you start to look at the breakdown by race, um, it's just... It's egregious, you know, so prison policy initiative is one that's looking to make changes there. Um, And then maybe a little closer to um, health and healing, there's a group called Integrative Medicine for the Underserved, uh, I Am For Us, and that one, um, they are working to make integrative, complementary, alternative, whatever you like to call it, uh, methods of healing available to people who haven't had a lot of access to them, mm. you know, um, whether it's massage or it's acupuncture or it's herbalism or it's, uh, you know, functional medicine or whatever. Even, even, um, emotional and mental health resources. Yeah. This is a collaboration between conventional doctors and conventional practitioners, nurses and pharmacists and, and, um, complementary and alternative practitioners, um, seeking to find ways to better provide for communities that are consistently under-resourced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just a couple of, of examples there. There are many, many, many other projects like this that are really worthy. Um, but a few we wanted to highlight today. And then the other thing, another way to look at this is to support not just like collectives or, or big groups or something like that, um, but individuals and people on the ground in communities of need. Um, so for a close connection to herbalism, um, there's a fantastic uh, person of color herbalist named Toy Scott who has put together a list of POC healers and herbalists and herb schools. Um, and we've got a link to that in the show notes here as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something. And again, it may be that these aren't in your, your part of the of the world, but you can support them and you can know that you're helping people who have been marginalized to be able to access herbalism, to share their knowledge and their traditions and to get those out to, to more people in the world. And that's really valuable and worthy too. Um, so that's them. And then uh, because, you know, we're recording this on May 30th, 2020, mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of attention to what's going on right now in uh, Minneapolis. Um because of the murder of George Floyd. Um, And so there's a lot of protests and things happening there right now. Um, We support street medics. Um, We've done some street medicing ourselves in the past and some dispatch work and other other ways of supporting that. Um, So the street medic collective uh, in that area is called North Star Health Collective. Um, And so they are out there possibly right now as we speak. In fact, right Um, now as we speak. Yeah. Uh, Providing providing uh, street medicine and first aid, um, uh, including emotional and psychological uh, first aid care to protesters and activists and people right there in the communities that are strongly affected. 
also um there there's a group in atlanta there's a group in there like overnight it seems like the number of cities impacted right now are is growing and growing and growing and hmm. um so most large cities do have some street medic presence um and if it is hard for you to figure out who those people are um a term that you can use to look up is mutual aid um that that mutual aid groups are um in a lot of different regions and this is also a really good place to plug yourself in as an herbalist too because um the idea is that you prepare ahead of time um so that when something happens, the group is ready to be in service. And you can't just, um, you can't just say, I mean, you can, but, but when you, um, maybe there's a protest in your city or, 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 or a disaster or whatever, but mm. specifically protest just in this moment, because that's what's going on right now. Um, there, there's actually a lot of organization that is required to support people who are volunteering their skills um, in mutual aid. And there are legal considerations to doing that. And there are relationships with law enforcement and with the conventional medical community in the area that all need to be negotiated. And so um, it's not, it's always good to help anyone that you see who needs help. That is always great. Um, but just that it is also important to recognize that there are organizations doing this work and they're self-organized. It's not like the, it's the Red Cross or anything like that. Um, but, but, it, but it does take a little bit of preparedness. Um, and so looking for mutual aid organizations in your region is a really good way to plug into this because, um, because that way you've got the skills, you have the community support, you have the collective resources to be able to help people really effectively. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um, so one last thing we wanted to make a note of here uh, was that we recognize that not all of our listeners are white and privileged like us. Um, and so, you know, a lot of our discussion today has been oriented towards white privileged people like us <laughs> um, and what we can do and how we can understand and learn and think differently and act from that place of privilege in order to support people who don't have it. Um, but we know that not all of our listeners are. Um, so to you, we want to say that we see you and we hear you and how can we help you? <laughs> yeah. Because we want to. Yeah. Um, so in case you didn't know already, uh, we do offer full scholarships to single moms of color, to incarcerated people and to Native American tribal members. Um, and so if that describes you or somebody you know who's interested in herbalism, then please reach out. Just drop us an email, info at commonwealthherbs.com, um, and we will get you hooked up. Yeah. Also, that if you are a, a white herbalist of privilege, um, actually, if you're a white herbalist at all, even if you're a white herbalist who's just barely scraping by, it is on us to do this work. Um, we're the ones that caused this problem we may not be the actual ones who put the policies in place but um we belong to the people who did that and it's our responsibility to undo it kind of like if you live in if you buy a house and the house has been there for a hundred years 
and uh, it has an old crumbling down fence that's about to fall into the neighbor's yard. Well, you didn't build that fence, but the house is yours. The property is yours. You're responsible for the upkeep and you can't let that fence fall into the neighbor's yard because that's a hazard and whatever, right? So, so even if we didn't build the fence, this is a system that was put in place to benefit us. It is our responsibility to change it. And it is our responsibility to educate other white people that we need to take action and do something. Um, that's not actually on the people who are suffering. Like, that's not their job. Uh, they have done enough. So even if all you do is talk to the people in your community and build more awareness and um, and fight for changes in your own community, you don't have to get on a plane and go to Minneapolis with a first aid kit. Like that's not right. actually necessary and that's probably not even helpful. Yeah. Your own community needs you. Even if you don't know a single person of color, even if you live out in the boonies somewhere and none of us can get by by ourselves. We all require community and we need a community that's healthy and that serves everyone and that is fair to everyone. So that's our work. Yeah, that's what we gotta build. All right, well, thanks for listening. Um, and we welcome any feedback that you may have. So please reach out, we'd love to hear from you. Hopefully, um, we, hopefully we did a good job. We, <laughs> we said what we, wanted to say and and if you know it, we, we and if we didn't then we'll do better next time yeah if it rubbed <laughs> you a little wrong then um then first recognize that maybe it rubbed you a little wrong because it, these things are hard to hear and you need to hear them and then if after that it rubbed you a little wrong because you needed to hear it but we didn't say it perfectly then please understand that it's hard and scary to say this stuff and I hope and that's we okay. did well. We'll, we'll be scared. <laughs> we'll do the hard thing. Yeah. We're, yeah. That's, that's on us. Right. So, so yeah. Um, cool. All right. Thanks for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week with some more holistic herbalism podcast for everybody. Uh, until then, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, drink some tea, drink some tea and support your community. Yes. Yeah. Bye.